I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore. And I won't be coming back here. Live from the Mecca, Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney, standing here with my handsome friend, Nick, and his beautiful daughter, Abigail. Can you say hi? She, she waved. Her hand went like that. <laughs> and Abigail's mom, Ashley, she's a little shy. So she isn't here uh, up on stage, but she is in the audience. Uh, Nick and Ashley and Abigail come from Reno, Nevada. Nick uh, has been watching Heart of the Matter since he was in high school. Senior year, yeah. Senior year of high school, and he's now? 24. 24. So uh, it's great to meet Nick and his family. Anything you want to say? God bless to all those coming out of Mormonism. All right, Nick. Thanks so much. Thanks, Abigail. Go get some more of that. C-A-N-D-Y. All right. The Lord God is moving in some radical ways. We praise him and thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, we got a packed program of information tonight. We're grateful for our volunteers and staff and people who are involved, people here in the live studio audience, people who are watching streaming, people who are watching on television here in Utah, and who will watch on the internet archives in the future. Got a call from a friend who lives in another state who I came to know through the show, and his whole family is being ripped up right now being divided, a division caused by the fact that the patriarchs of the family, the males, are a bunch of brothers, and uh, they have all led their family for years and years during their 40s and 50s and 60s in Mormonism, served missions, marrying the temple, and they've discovered that uh, it's not true. And uh, these brothers uh, have dived in headlong into researching Mormon history, and in addition, studying the Bible. Well, all of this has served to devastate the family. It happens, and uh, the wives, the sister-in-laws are writing hate mail to the brothers, and the kids are up in arms. Daughter-in-laws are all upset. Well, this large extended family who all live within the same vicinity of each other have a close friend who is in the high, high, hierarchy of LDS Church up there on North Temple. And so the brothers gave him a call and said, we, we need to talk to you. And they actually flew in a few days ago into Salt Lake City and had a private meeting with this uh, uh, brother who was going to go unnamed. Before they went into the meeting, they called me and asked for any last minute advice. And we talked. And the next day, they called back and gave me an assessment of what happened. Now, after talking for quite a long while, they brought up church history with this brother. They brought up all kinds of biblical passages that aren't congruent with LDS doctrine. And uh, they arrived at a really helpful insight that I don't think I've ever come to in sharing uh, this with Heart of the Matter and, and on TV. So I'm gonna go to the whiteboard and talk to you about that insight really quickly. Uh, can I put this down here, Derek? All right. So this is what they discovered talking to this uh, hierarchy top-of-the-line LDS brother of the brethren. 
they discovered that if there's a Christian man, especially one who has been born in Christianity, yes, they have jobs, they have family, they have church, and those are all important parts of their lives, but it's their relationship to God that they have firmly grown in through the Bible and the studying of the Bible that gives them their worldview. And so it's, it's, so what we have here on the board is we have an LDS man and we have a Christian man who are going to go to lunch to talk about religion. Now, when the Christian man, he goes to the appointment, this is his background, and I, and I drew it big because that's all he knows how to refer to. That's his life, that's everything he's studied, okay? Well, if you look to the LDS side, and, and these are drops, by the way. Uh, Kathy Maggie, they're drops. And so, what you don't just have one thing for a Latter-day Saint, this active Latter-day Saint LDS man, what you have is the Book of Mormon and the study of that. You have the Doctrine and Covenants. You have the pearl of great price. Uh, you have uh, the friend if you're a kid, the children's friend. You have the New Era magazine if you're a teen. You have the Ensign magazine if you're an adult. You have living prophets and apostles that speak at general conference and talk about each other, really. That every now and then they mention uh, references from these books, and they do have the Bible, but it's a, it's, it's a pretty insignificant drop, the Bible. And when they teach it, they're teaching Mormonism through the Bible. They are not teaching the Bible, okay? So you meet with, you, you, you think, well, that's a lot of stuff. Well, then they have their callings, and then they have home teaching, and then they have ward activities, and then they have going to the temple, and, and uh, what else do they have that fills up? They have family home evening, and, uh, and they have seminary that they go to and they learn Mormonism, and uh, then they have missions where it's all about Mormonism. And so you can see the difference. You can have a person, man or woman, who has lived on nothing but the Word of God. And you have the LDS who come in and they are so inundated with all of this stuff, that when lunch comes together, this Latter-day Saint cannot comprehend the worldview of this Christian man. There is a complete division in the dialogue. And that is what these guys discovered. They said, yeah, he's, he's high up, and, and, and certainly he, he knows his, uh, his Mormon stuff. He didn't really respond to the questions about history and the questions about difficulties in history. But by golly, when we brought up biblical stuff, he was like a deer in the headlights. And that's really amazing. But it's, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty expected when you think about it. Okay, while I'm on the subject, I wanna give you another illustration that might help shed some light. Wendy, please advance and do your job, thank you. Uh, another illustration that might shed some light on the difficulty of people coming out of the LDS church and what they face, okay? We have long said that why someone leaves Mormonism is more important than the fact that they leave Mormonism at all. I have always said that, other people don't, but I believe that. It used to be Christian apologists would do everything they could to get LDS people out of the church. I call it the Eddy, E-D-D-E method. And I'm not gonna tell you why I call it that, but it's the method of just giving and saying anything possible to get them to come out, have be shocked at the information, and to stumble out into this world, okay? I think all this approach does is take people from believing in God, believing in Jesus, having a church at least, and essentially to not believing in anything at all. And uh, it's not real good. In fact, I think it's highly irresponsible for us to take that approach. You see, no matter who we are, we all see life through a set of lenses, okay? And we, those lenses are given to us. They're hung on our nose at birth. 
by our parents. Certainly there's genetic factors that play in and there are how we bend and refract information that comes in based on who we are. Certainly that happens. Uh, but we see things how by according to what our parents allow us to be exposed to up until there's a time when we start to look outside of what they have been feeding us, right? A great Christian sister named Hannah Whitehall Smith said something interesting relative to the lenses we are given at birth. Look at what she said. I could not fail to see, moreover, that after all, each one of us was largely a creature of circumstance. That what we were and what we did was more or less the result of our temperaments, of our inherited characteristics, of our social surroundings, and of our education. Those are the lenses, the goggles I'm talking about. And that as these were all providentially arranged for us, with often no power on our part to alter them, it would not be just of God who has placed us in their midst to let them determine our eternal destiny. I'm not gonna try to get into that, but I want you to think about what that's really saying. If changing the worldview given to us at birth for just the common Joe, common Jane, is tough, and it is tough. Born a Muslim, usually die a Muslim, born a Jew, typically die a Jew, born a Mormon, unless you are really seeking, typically live with being a Mormon, born a Christian, typically continue to be a Christian. If it's tough to remove those goggles for just the average Joe, I wanna to submit to you that it is doubly and triply tough for people who are LDS because of all those drops that were going into that funnel and feeding that person and their worldview and how they see life. So I wanna illustrate another thing going to the board. And, and I wanna hopefully, I'll be, try to be quick about it to help explain this, all right? And this is how it looks. We have, I'll make the Mormon glasses, okay? Here they are. Here's the thing that's, that's really difficult about the Mormon lens. First of all, they use totalist methodologies to control and to keep the people in line. That means that it incorporates everything about your life. So we have totalistic methodologies. I'm just gonna write totalistic. The next thing is, is they cram down your throat nicely, kindly, but they cram it down your throat that Mormonism is the only true church. And that comes by people bearing testimony of it all the time, all the time you hear about it. Then they take biblical doctrines and they turn it into what we have titled twistianity. They take things like baptism, they take things like, they take everything actually, and they twist it just a little bit so that a person coming out is so poisoned when it comes to the Bible, when, for instance, when I came out and other Latter-day Saints who come out, when they start studying the Bible and then they go like to talk to a friend about it, they're not sure if it's Mormonism or biblical Christianity that they're talking about. It gets so convoluted. And then they have seductive, really seductive teachings. Like what? Well, let me give you a few. They teach the absolute romantic idea. It's, a Plato, it's a, from Plato, that everybody came from a pre-mortal existence. There was a giant play about it. And, and so you believe that you came and, and Joseph Smith taught that you were with your spirit family in this pre-mortal existence. And you chose to come down and take on a body and assume the thing. So you've got this whole, I lived before, just like Jesus came from above. Mormons believe they did too. And this giant romantic idea that, hey, I've always existed. I was a spirit child of God in heaven before I came here. And, and that's huge, that's very seductive. The, the, the next one that's super seductive is that your marriage is eternal. That you are married to your spouse for time and all eternity and that the children that you bring into this world are sealed to you. So when you take somebody who has these goggles on and then you try to get them off, you have all this stuff working against you, right? 
And then you have, we have a modern prophet who is leading and guiding us today. And then you get to hear his messages and you stand when he comes into the room and you sing, we thank thee, O God, for a prophet. So you have a living prophet and you go to your regular Christian church. It's like, you know, the pastor's like, and, and you've got a living prophet, very seductive. And then they have, they have clarity on things that are not present typically within Christianity. Clarity that's not true, but they have clarity, like on the Trinity. You know, it's something that's very difficult to try to comprehend. And so, you know, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Seventh-day Adventist, all of those can make very clear these difficult doctrines. So this is what you have here. This is, these are the Mormon goggles, and it's been put on since they were young, and you have this stuff working against them. So what you do, what you really have is Plato's allegory of the cave. And what that is, is Plato, he, he taught through the book, The Republic, that we are in life, we are in a cave and we're looking at a blank wall and we're chained to a wall behind us. And there's a fire behind us. And, and, and there's a fire behind us and there are figures that are walking by and they are doing things and we, are look, we can't turn around and see them. We only look ahead and we can only see shadows of what's going on. And, and we don't really know what reality is. This is the, the idea that the Mormons are in. They're in Plato's cave. They haven't seen the sunlight, all right? So when they decide to finally, when the glasses are taken off and they come out, guess what they meet with? It's utter blindness. It is horrible. It is so bright or it is so dark. And they just are just, I have been fooled my entire life. I, I, uh, I, I, I'm utterly catastrophically, painfully blind. I have been stupid. I have been duped. The only true church is not really true, so therefore is any. All these doctrines about Jesus, forget it. All this total in, uh, uh, inculcation, these seductive teachings. And so they come out of the cave and they see the sun and they're utterly blind. So guess what? This is the thing that I want to get to. This is the point. They have a world waiting to give them another set of goggles. And those goggles are in every walk of life. And typically what happens is they put on the set if they come out of Mormonism straight out without knowing anything else, they go to putting on the goggles of atheism or agnosticism or bitterness or, you know, whatever it is. And I'm sure Muslims do the same thing. I'm sure very strong Catholics do the same thing. A lot of Mormons go, and we see this in this state in particular, carnality. They were so good over there that when they come out without Jesus and sometimes with Jesus, they say, dude, I used to thought, think I walked on water. Now I'm turning into wine and I'm drinking. And they sleep around and they break up their family because they're like lions that have been let out of a very restrictive cage, you see. Catholicism is one they often go to because Catholicism is very legalistic. Mormonism is too in terms of the things it demands. So uh, the whole point is how difficult it is to bring people out of Mormonism, but for the right way, to just, to just do what we do and not bring Jesus into that mix because the goal are, I'm not gonna even put him as goggles. The goal is Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. The direct, direct, no church getting in between those two, no church. Now, yeah, we go to church, we study, we, we love our Christian friends, we go out to dinner with them and whatever you do, but no church gets in between. When churches start getting in between, the Mormon starts to see, oh, wait a minute, something's going wrong again. And so that's why we have to kind of teach the churches in this state and other places to kind of back off on, on trying to get their Latter-day Saints involved as members and doing everything that the churches want them to do, okay? So, Wendy, you're up again. With that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, 
come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. In Matthew chapter 13, the disciples, uh, Jesus has been teaching in parables, and they say, well, how come you teach in parables, Jesus? And his reply says, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall receive more abundance, but whosoever has not, from him shall be taken away even that he has. Therefore speak I to them in parables. Because they seen, seen, see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy Isaiah, which said, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. Jesus goes on, he says, For this people's heart is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, he says, for you see in your ears they do hear. What can we do for those whose eyes have been made blind, whose ears that have been made deaf, who see the world through those lenses we just talked about, and we cannot get them to take them off their face, to get these goggles off so they can see Jesus? First, we pray. We pray, we pray, we pray. We keep them in our prayers. Because in the end, you know, it's God's prerogative and job to bring them out, not ours. We do our best to share and pray, but bottom line, he does the work. So he asks us to pray, tells us to pray, we pray. Next, we share with them. Now, this includes all sorts of combinations and methods, just like fishing. Sometimes you'll use a net, sometimes you'll use a spear, sometimes you'll use a fishing line, sometimes you'll, you'll try to catch them with your hands. Uh, there's all sorts of methods for fishing. Same thing with sharing with people. Sometimes it's gonna take being a friend to them and never even talking about the Lord. Let the Holy Spirit guide. Sometimes it's gonna be getting in their kitchen and bringing them to the truth because nothing has worked before and you have to slap them and make them see what it is. Maybe they get angry. We have seen hundreds and hundreds of emails to us complaining about my demeanor from people who said, I hated you, but I wanted to prove you wrong. I came and they've come around. They've left. Sometimes that method works. Sometimes you might have to challenge their beliefs in a different way, historical facts. The spirit has to guide. But remember, my friends, they are blinded by a culture, by false teachings, by emotionalism, by their own pride, by their own arrogance, and they are terrified of taking those goggles off. I wanna end the segment uh, from the word with the words that we just read, that last verse of Christ in Matthew 13. Uh, just put one time set to music. Take a listen. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Thank you. 
word of prayer. Father God, we pray that you will step in and heal those who haven't been healed, whose hearts are still torn asunder, who think they can earn their own salvation by the works that they are burdened to do. We pray, Lord, that you will um, shine a light and that we can be used wherever we are to help all people, not just the LDS, but anyone who has not seen you as the way, truth, and the life to see you. We pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we talked about God. We've talked about soteriology, and that means the, the way someone is saved. And remember, we're trying to come to a common ground between the Mormon side and the LDS side, Mormon side and the Christian side. And uh, we launched into what the biblical model is for what it means to be a Christian about two weeks ago before we had our guest Adam last week. I guarantee you tonight, I'm gonna bring something to your attention that if you think about it, it's gonna rock your little world. It's, it's really unique, it came to me as I was preparing. So hang on to your uh, hats, folk, here she comes. One of the things Joseph Smith introduced to his followers was the idea that God was once a man and that man, us, you and me, can become gods, capital G as my neighbor says. Uh, the idea is wholly reprehensible to Bible-believing Christians who are monotheistic and who supposedly believe that there is only one God who has always been, is self-existent, and is immutable. That means he doesn't change. He is immutable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Bible-believing Christians also state, without equivocation, that there will always only be one God. Exodus 8.10 says, there is none like unto the Lord our God. Deuteronomy 32.39 says, see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. God is in a lowercase g here. 2 Samuel 7.22 says, Wherefore thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. This is a really important verse because the God in the neither is there any God beside me is with a capital G. Do you see that? There, there is no God beside me. That's a capital G. That means, hey, 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 forget about... God having a father, capital G, there is no God. That's an important verse. 1 Samuel 2, 2 says, There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside me, neither is there any rock like our God. Isaiah 45, 22, Look unto me, and ye shall be saved, all ye ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Isaiah 40, 18, To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? Isaiah 46, 9, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Isaiah 44, 8, is there a God beside me? Yea, I know of no God. I know not any. Even from everlasting to everlasting, Psalms 92 says, thou art God, everlasting to everlasting. I think we can safely and plainly say, as Bible-believing Christians, God is one. God is always and only God, and there's none else beside him. Mormonism teaches some very different things relative to God. At a funeral by a man named King Follett, way back in the day, Joseph Smith, right before he was shot, he taught at that funeral as recorded in people's diaries, we have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute that idea and take away the veil so that you may see. Psalms 92 says, God is everlasting to everlasting, no beginning, no end. Joseph Smith says, no, I will refute that idea. What are you gonna believe? Now, the LDS defenders will say that the King Follett comments are sketchy because they were uh, all recorded in, uh, in personal journals and the LDS church is attempting today to publicly, publicly, distance itself from Joseph Smith's teachings on God once being a man, and they, and they sometimes hedge on man becoming God. They try to pass these teachings off as a couplet or as teachings that are best vague in the minds of the Latter-day Saints. Listen to what LDS apostle Orson Pratt said in Journal of Discourses. Remember that God, our Heavenly Father, was perhaps once a child 
and mortal like ourselves and rose step by step in the scale of progress. James Talmadge, another respected LDS apostle for the church said, God is a being who has attained his exalted state by a path which now his children are permitted to follow. The LDS teachings have always been, regardless of what they say publicly or infer deceptively, that God was once a man, that God had a father, who had a father, who had a father, and that man may become God, a God, by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the Mormon church. For them to say anything less is absolutely untrue. That's why they go to the temple. The late LDS uh, prophet Gordon B. Hinckley, who, in my opinion, is a, was a very deceptive man, was living evidence of the church's leaders' attempts to deceive the public on these teachings. All the way back in 1997, I know you're very well of this, aware of this, in an interview with a reporter from the San Francisco Chronicle, Hinckley, instead of boldly proclaiming this fundamental LDS belief, was pretty vague. The reporter asked, don't Mormons believe that God was once a man? And in his good old boy fashion, Hinckley said, oh, I wouldn't say that. There was a little couplet coined, as man is God once was, as God is man may become. <laughs> uh, now, there's more of a couplet than anything else. That gets into some pretty deep theology I don't think we know very much about. That's the end of that quote. Anyone listening to this interview would walk away and with the idea that the LDS are not firm on the position that God was once a man. But it is a fundamental teaching belief and driver in the church. Any active member would agree and knows it. As a follow-up note, Hinckley later in an August 1997 interview with Time Magazine, is quoted by writer David Van Bema as saying, in regard to the doctrine that God was once a man, again, I don't know that we teach it. I don't know that we emphasize it. <laughs> End quote. That was a flat out lie from Hinckley, prophet, president of the Mormon church. A flat out lie. I don't know that we teach it. I don't know that we emphasize it. In fact, listen to this. One year earlier, Professor Bob Millett at Brigham Young University wrote about God in the church publication, The Ensign, and said, quote, God is an exalted and glorified being that he was once a man and dwelt on the earth, end quote. That was the year before Hinckley gave his guffaw talk of, you know, I don't know. President Hinckley got some heat from the LDS uh, because of his response. They were like, President Hinckley, you know, th th we believe that. Okay, so in an act of sheer duplicity, this is what goes on from the top, and less than a year later, he stood up at an LDS general conference and he provided the LDS listeners with a coded message, okay? Now, it was very tricky, very slippery. And, uh, uh, and he said about their intimate knowledge of God from the general conference pulpit, this is what he said. What is the Mormon doctrine of deity of God? That's the question he asked. And he quotes Joseph Smith, okay? Joseph Smith, and here's the quote. It is the first principle of the gospel to know for certainty the character of God and to know that we converse with him as one man converses with another, okay? That's what he gave at General Conference. Now, you might think, well, that's not really anything big, but here's the thing. Why is the quote duplicitous? Because he didn't finish it. This is, where, this is why they're so tricky. Any truly doctrinated, uh, a doctrinally based believer in Mormonism knows the quote wasn't finished. Had Hinckley finished the quote, he would have said this, okay, from Joseph Smith. He would have asked, what is the Mormon doctrine of deity of God? It is the first principle of the gospel to know for certainty the character of God and to know that we converse with him as one man converses with another and 
that he once was a man like us. Yea, that God himself, the Father of us all, dwelt on an earth, the same as Jesus Christ did, and I will show it from the Bible, Smith said. Hinckley used the quote, but he did, so what he did was he was able to cover his tracks for publicly saying, oh, I don't know that we teach that. But he used the quote from Smith that proves he did. Joseph Fielding Smith wrote, our Father in heaven, according to the prophet, had a father, and since there has been a condition of this kind throughout all eternity, each father had a father. That's an eternal regression of God's. Father, 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 on back ad infinitum. Many years, final quote, Brigham Young said earlier in the Journal of Discourses, how many gods are there? I don't know. But there was never was a time when there were not gods and not worlds and when men were passing through the same ordeals that we are passing through now. There's Brigham Young. A final and fundamental LDS teaching, which is a natural extension of the doctrine that there are many gods and we are all involved in the process of becoming gods, is the teaching that we will become gods too if we obey the Mormon church. This, my friends, is the LDS goal. In June of 1993, in an article in the LDS published magazine, The Ensign, it said, quote, the stunning truth lost to mankind before the restoration, that means to Christians, it was lost to all Christians, is that each of us is a God in embryo. We may become as our heavenly parents, we too in exalted families may one day preside in our own realms, preside. Prophet Spencer W. Kimball said, in each one of us is the potentiality to become a God, pure, holy, influential, true, and independent of all these earthly forces. We learn from scripture that each of us has an eternal existence, that we were in the beginning with God, that's what it says about Jesus, and understanding gives, and this understanding gives us a unique sense of man's dignity, okay? So when it comes to the LDS teaching that God was once a man and that man can become God, all of us must, in, in leveling the playing field, has to be trashed. It cannot be part of the playing field. We did not come from it. We did not come eternally from a preexistence. God does not have a father, biblically speaking. No way could we include any of that in the, the common ground platform we're establishing. I think you agree. However, did Smith, and therefore does Mormonism tap into the biblical idea, albeit they tap into it errantly, that modern Christianity has avoided almost entirely, and it gets worse and worse with every given year, as a result of cultural and doctrinal, doctrinal and practical traditions? I would say so. In other words, I'm saying Mormon, Mormonism has something that they've tapped into that Christianity is avoiding and has not tapped into it, and it's the result of tradition within the Christian church. Think, listen closely, okay? You see, as we mentioned two weeks ago, the Bible clearly teaches that God wants Christians by and through suffering for Christ, this is biblical, to become joint heirs with Christ, to become joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That is a biblical uh, stance that Paul takes, and it's repeated. Here's the sticky wicket part to consider. You ready? If Jesus was the Son of God from before the creation, meaning he did not become the Son of God by taking on a flesh, but was God the Son, as the Trinitarians teach, he was God the Son well back before anything was created, he and his father had companionship like an earthly father and, the son, and a son would have, okay, if that was Jesus. And man is to become a joint heir with Jesus, who Trinitarians say is God the Son. Wouldn't those Christians who become joint heirs with Jesus Christ, ultimately sharing everything Jesus has and is, become co-gods through Christ? since he's always been God, the son? I mean, if, there, if you're gonna be a co-heir and in the Greek, let me tell you something. That does not mean you get a little bit of the crumbs that come from Jesus' table. Paul says we are to be joint heirs, and so what it's saying there is we become co-heirs with Jesus Christ, and the Trinitarians say he's been God from the beginning, so to me, that would say, if you're gonna believe that, that we're supposed to become co-gods 
There's no other way to look at that. I've never heard this taught. I've never heard it discussed or looked at. But I'm gonna tell you something, I don't agree with it at all. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we become co-gods. Oh, don't get me wrong. I do believe, however, that the human being named Jesus, filled with the Spirit of God, God with us, certainly, the Word of God made flesh, chose to overcome all things, and God has placed all things in his hands as a result, that's biblical, and those who suffer with him will become joint heirs with him as sons and daughters of God, just as Jesus is the Son of God, but never God the Son. Do you see why to stand on these things makes such a huge difference in the Mormon uh, Christian debate? If you don't, you're gonna get in trouble because the LDS have things that do, are biblical into their strange Joseph Smithian made-up religion, and if we don't stick to what is biblical and sound, we're gonna find ourselves in trouble here. And that is a philosophical dilemma, in my opinion. Next week, we will look at what becoming joint heirs with Christ through suffering looks like through one more heuristic model. I was gonna share it this week until this thing came up. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. And let me have a drink here. Got an email. Fits right in with what we were talking about. Sean, I have attended a church at blank. I'm not gonna say what church it was. In this city, in Utah, for the past seven years. Sunday, June 24th, was the first time I've ever heard a teaching in which any of the pastors made a statement like this, quote, if we fail to believe that Christ was eternal, co-equal with God from the beginning to all eternity, then Christ cannot be our savior. If he is not eternal as God and as God is eternal, then he could not have been an adequate sacrifice and he could not be our savior. The study is of the Gospel of John, he says. What they are teaching sounds like separate being from God, one that's with God or from the beginning or, in my words, two gods. This goes directly to the recent schism that you have had up with your thoughts on the Trinity that I witnessed in one of your video archives. Additionally, in your archives, I found video support that supports the teaching that you explained on the 24th. I am, in fact, confused by the insistence that the book of John says what they are saying. I was a bit put off, and I am now trying to work through the insistence that it must be this way because I actually was comfortable with the words you spoke on your teaching on the Trinity. And he goes on, we're going to call him Mr. Selleck. Something to think about. Listen. Jesus, God in the flesh, no question. Not denying that. God the Father, not denying that. Holy Spirit. But I'm telling you, the Trinitarian doctrine, we need to examine it if we're gonna have any effectiveness in reaching all peoples, the Muslims, the Mormons, all these peoples, we need to look at our own house. From Biker Bob in California, Mr. McCraney, today for the first time I watched some of your videos and the first words made a lot of sense. You were speaking that when you left the Mormon church, your, uh, the, the thing that got, he says something else here. The thing that got me is what you said about your wife and it's love. Even though you were having a difference in spirituality where most couples break up, you said to continue to love her and that Jesus is the main thing. Where all other mainstream religions fail to grasp this main concept, it seems to be. Most talk about the Ten Commandments as they were a covenant and he goes on and talks about that. But he says, look it, it's all captured under love. I am currently a shunned Jehovah's Witness. And after the last few days, I'm gonna be disfellowshipped. After what I have seen in religion, I am going to go back to my original beliefs as an outlaw biker. Most everyone hates outlaw bikers, but they are just a bunch of guys who have been kicked around by society who kick back a little bit harder. I studied with Jehovah's Witness and did all the right things and was shunned for reporting a bad situation they swept under the table like all other big religious institutions. I love this guy. Just wanna say that you're doing the right things, be watching your videos, etc. Bob, uh, out there in the desert, thanks so much. Had a woman from Boston call. Uh, and it says, uh, she wrote an email, it says, I'm having a lot of difficulty leaving 
there's such a strong emotional tie in Mormonism. So uh, I said, just call me. So she called me on Sunday and we had a good hour long conversation. Her name is Sheila. And she talks about, whoa, she talks about how um, they have just embraced her and sucked her in and did all this, this, this stuff for her. And she became friends and really immersed in the, in the Mormon faith back there in Boston. And, and she let them know that she was still going to her evangelical Christian church after several years. And she said within, within a week, she said, no one said anything. No one called me in and told me not to. They just stopped talking to me. It was just a cutoff, just like that. That's what Mormonism is. Listen, we have Hayen from Melbourne, Australia. Hayen, you're on Heart of the Matter. Thanks for calling. Hey, is this Sean? It is. Hey, Sean, how you going? I'm going well. How are you? Yeah, good. Um, yeah, I just wanted to uh, talk to you about... Um, I've been catching up on some of your shows. I've been following you and I watch campus and stuff because I can't... I haven't got a church at the moment. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I was just wondering... Um, I just want to say great show tonight. Also, I'm just a bit confused because um, I've been watching you and I've kind of become more of a preterist in my view of um, the Bible and... Um, you know, things have changed. I used to like watch Chuck Smith and watch his verse by verse on Revelation, and now I'm kind of confused, like, you know, you know, just sort of about, you know, the end times and all that stuff. I'm wondering um, what the Bible actually says about end times, and um, does it say anything about, you know, um, for us for end times, or is it just, do we just look at the Bible completely as it's written for that time, and do we just trust in God for what happens, you know? in the end times and just wondering what you think about all that it's really interesting you say that uh is it hayen hayden yeah yeah listen uh because on sunday we talked about that what is the bible to us today the church the eschatology and end times and uh, listen we're going to get to that eventually in the show so i'm kind of preempting but i am a complete preterist absolutely yeah. in fact if, and uh, I believe that the Bible uh, is a historical record for uh, the Jews and God's work among them, and that uh, mm -hmm. the physical work with among them, physical Messiah, physical resurrection, physical return, judgment upon Israel. And I believe mm -hmm. that the Bible is the greatest tool in the world to help those who are now part of the body of Christ, who are living in Melbourne, Australia, or uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, to guide us and how to live and be Christians. But I do not believe yeah. that the, the Bible uh, uh, now today, uh, I think it's, I am a preterist and I do believe it is completely fulfilled. Yeah, yeah, me too. I'm just, I guess I just find it hard because, you know, um, I sit down with Christians a lot and they're talking about Jesus coming and um, I'm just on the tip of my tongue thinking, you know, I, I, don't, I don't see it that way and it's kind of hard to share because then you're gonna start like a big debate and, um, yeah, I'm interested to see what you have to say about that when, when it comes about. But I'll, I'll just keep watching and, and see what what comes up and keep looking at the Word and, yeah. and, and let, hey, let God reveal. Hayden, do me a favor. Send me your uh, send me an email telling us telling about this conversation, and I'll send you a five part sermon that we did uh, about a year ago on this very topic, and it will help you go through the Bible and see what Jesus was talking about in Matthew twenty three and twenty four, and what the apostles were talking about, etc. I think it will help a lot. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll send you an email. Thank you, man. All right, great. Thanks for watching. All right, see you, man. Okay. God bless. Bye bye. God bless you. Uh, from Jill. Hi, I'm a born-again Christian, but because of the below verses, I have trouble believing in once saved, always saved. How do you reconcile these verses? I'm just going to read them quickly. Matthew 7, 21, Matthew 24, 13, Romans 11, 22, Philippians 2, 12, 1 Corinthians 9, 27, 1 Corinthians 10, 11 and 12, 2 Timothy 2, 11, 13, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, Hebrews 10, 26, 27, John 15, 10. With your belief... In the assurance of salvation, God bless, thanks, Jill. My belief in the assurance of salvation is set. God does not let us go. He is there and he does not let us go, okay? That I wanna say clearly, plainly, okay? I agree with those verses completely, 
but those verses have to be understood in every single case of what they're talking about. And what they're talking about is salvation cannot be lost, it cannot, um, but it can be given away. It can be dropped from one's agenda or an itinerary. It can be uh, uh, forfeited up by the person when they say, I don't believe anymore. Now, sin can play a role in that in undermining and eroding the base upon which we stand, but sin is not the reason that we would ever lose salvation. God, I mean, sin's taken care of. So God doesn't say, oh, he sinned, that's it, you're gone. Never, never, never. That's the beauty of being a Christian is you know you're gonna have failures and he's always gonna be there for you. But the, the, but the scriptures as a spiritual guide are constantly warning us to avoid apostasy, to be careful, to cling to faith. And those verses that Jill gave uh, were really good. So I told her that, she wrote back. Now listen to this carefully. I agree with your assessment of what it would take for a person to lose their salvation. What I wrote to her was what I just said. It's a person saying, I don't wanna believe. I don't believe, okay? She says, I agree with you. Now listen, she adds, I believe one would have to sin seriously on purpose and then refuse to repent, stop. That is not the same thing, okay? The problem with her adding that is that we all sin seriously still, okay? We have not become sanctified in our flesh because we have become believers in our heart. We sin by the fact that we're in our flesh. We have lustful thoughts. You show me women, sorry. I try my damnedest but you just, it's, just, it's just the way it is. Uh, get me in the right mood, I could have a tad teeny tiny bit of drunkenness in me. It's possible. Certainly driving, I can be violent. I don't wanna be, I hate the flesh. I could be killed tomorrow with all those things on my scorecard since I became a Christian. I love the Lord with everything I got. I hate my flesh when it acts out like that. But that is willful sinning. That is willful, you see. And then you say, on purpose, I'm telling you, we, it, all sin is on purpose almost, except for those infractions that we don't even know we're doing wrong, and, and, and then refuse to repent. Now I wanna finalize this email with this point. And we've talked on it before, but let me tell you. Repent is a word that was assigned to the house of Israel who were given the law. When John the Baptist came and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's saying, change your mind about who you thought the Messiah was. I am paving the way for him. Repent, turn from your ways, okay? It means change your mind and then your, your, your life is gonna change with it, okay? Paul never uses the word repent. How come? Why doesn't Paul use the word repent and tell us to repent? Because Sin has been taken care of. So we aren't going into the Catholic confessional and to the Mormon bishop and doing the repentance, our scarf repentance method. We are failing in our faith. So when a Christian repents, they're repenting of failing to have faith. We walk by faith. If we choose to sin and we let sin come in, it's because of lack of faith. And so we pray to God, forgive me for the lack of faith. Forgive me for the lack of love. Forgive me for the things that you've commanded me to be as a Christian. But it's not the sin, and, and, and very few people believe this. I know, I know there's pastors out there that say, that's baloney. I mean, you gotta forget, forget of that sin. You come in here, you know, Martin Luther said it best. He said, if somebody has smallpox, you don't have to examine every single one of them to know he has the disease, okay? Our whole person is infected in the flesh, but not our spirit. Now I will say this, show me somebody who disregards sin in their life, doesn't think it means anything, enjoys it, is living in it, then we have a problem with faith not being manifested through love. That's a big issue. If, I was, if someone came to me and said I committed adultery, okay, well let's talk about that, what happened? Well, you know, I really made a mistake and I really feel terrible and I blew it and I messed up with my wife and I'm so sorry and, and I don't wanna do that. And I would talk about how, yeah, you, you kind of lost track of your faith. 
you, you didn't love and, and you lost track of your faith in the Lord and so it, it led you down that path. You wouldn't hear me say, you, okay, that'll go. We're gonna have 20 days of prayer and, and never. You know, the sin is, the sin is there, but it, it's a manifestation of a failed faith, you see. But if a guy came in and said, listen, you know, I'm committing adultery and I enjoy it, baby. This grace in Christ is wonderful stuff. I'd say, dude, you're, you're insane. Absolutely insane. It's the attitude. It's the heart, you see. And so I love Jill and what she's saying here, but she's got some things wrong. We are going to continue to seriously sin sometimes, and it, and it fades. Guy, the sinner I was when I first became a Christian, between what I am now, night and day. If somebody would have got a hold of me when I first became a Christian and laid on the LDS repentance and you are a, boy, I would have probably walked away from Christianity too. Same reason I walked from Mormonism. I didn't have any type of way to find solace before God. Well, Christ gave us that solace. He gave his life so that we could have it. He came and he lived perfectly in his flesh and we couldn't. And he says, look to me and live. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And you look to him as the one who did it for us, and pretty soon you're so appreciative that you don't want to commit the adultery, and you don't want to look at the lustful woman too long, and you don't want to get drunk, and, and all those things fade. You see, that's the model. That's how it works. Only got a few. Oh, my goodness, I didn't look at this. Let's go to Christine in Modesto, California. Christine, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Um, I just wanted to uh, say things one first about uh, the um, salvation. Um, I I know, like in my personal walk and with other people, that they always come to God in the end, and so I think that just that's just something that happens. Like He doesn't let you go. But I also wanted to. You were. I think you were had a question about uh, something about um, like earlier uh, Bibles. We do have earlier New Testament Bible texts that are before 300, like multiples. Oh, tell me about it. And, okay, um, well, there's this one um, from John uh, P52 uh, and P66, that's what they call it, that is from um, 90 to uh, 178 feet. Okay. And, um, and, you, and, and are you saying... Sorry, it's like... <laughs> Christine, are you saying that but that? One, oh, sorry. Yeah. Are you saying that sorry. that's a compilation of the of the full Bible that we have today that was available in ninety A.D. Uh, the 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 uh, there's our parts of John and um, all the way up to three hundred A.D. Um, up to that point, we do have um, bits and pieces of uh, the Bible that will that that uh, a full compilation altogether of the New Testament right, and multiples, you know? So right. we do have those earlier ones like in papyrus and stuff like that. Yeah. But they're, they're framic. Um, anyway, I had a question. Wait, um, be wait, before you go to your question. Sorry. Christine, before you go to your question, I want to clarify. Yeah. I'm not saying there isn't manuscript evidence to support the entirety of the Bible that we have. My point was there was not a, a Bible available to believers, and I'm not even sure after 300 if there was a Bible available to believers to read in total. They, they, they didn't. Oh no, no. Yeah. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just. I'm. I didn't know it. It sounded like you didn't know that there was earlier text. Oh no, I, I know so that. I was just telling you that. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, I'm sorry. This is like my first time calling. Um, <laughs> kind of nervous, but um. I had a question. Um, well, first I just want to say you're great because I just, I, I never, I don't have anyone that believes in ultimate reconciliation that I know. And um, so it, it's just great, to, or you call it X, it's just great that um, that there's, you know, other people that, because that, that's something that God put on my heart. Awesome. So it's just great that, uh, you know, um, that I can, I hear other people talking about from the Bible text, what it really means. Right. But, um, I have a question. I, I've been watching your, um, Trinity and I don't understand one part. Yeah. Um, cause it says one, uh, well, you were talking about, um, 
we are as one with Jesus as one. I mean, isn't that a different type of one? Like more like connect to unity. Like I don't agree. I don't understand that. Yeah, it, it, that is. That, that is. I would agree. That is in terms of unity, the oneness that Jesus was talking about in this intercessory prayer, or if we become joint heirs. Are you talking about that? There were, it was like, I'm sorry, it was a few weeks ago. I'm not very good with oh. verses, but it was talking about um, you were using a Bible verse to show that, you know, Jesus and the Father are one, which I'm kind of coming to that conclusion. But um, you were saying as we are one. So I don't know how they could be, they have to be two separate ones oh. or not one. I see. So I didn't understand how that, that was an, an example of God and Jesus and the Father being one. I tell you what, Christine, we're out of time. Watch next week. I'll open up with the discussing that and see if I can make it more clear. Okay, thanks so much. Bye. Hey, thanks for watching. Bye. Hey, I'm sorry, Jeff in Danbury, Connecticut. Uh, we're out of time. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake, a storm's arising The dawn's awaiting till